1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Food. I'm Amir, and uh, today I have the pleasure to talk to uh, Sydney Giacoloni and uh, Professor uh, Julian Adjiman about their new book, The Immigrant Food Nexus, which was published in 2020 by MIT Press, which is affiliated with Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Sydney and Julian, thanks for accepting my invitation and for being here today. Thank you, Amir. Thanks for having us. Um, I'd first like to uh, start with a bit of background about uh, yourselves and uh, also about your research.
0: Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Julian, you go first. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sydney. Um, yeah, My research platform, if you like, Amir, is this concept of just sustainabilities. Um, for too long, in the 90s, when I was um, starting to do research in, in sustainability, I noticed that sustainability was almost synonymous with environmental sustainability. And I wanted to um, bring in a justice element. And at that time, the environmental justice movement was growing in the United States. But what I noticed was that a lot of urban planners and policy makers, people who in theory make things happen, saw environmental justice as an, an activist or advocacy agenda and so weren't really fully integrating it. So my colleagues and I thought, how do we get the justice from environmental justice into this new policy arena of sustainability? And we came up with this idea of just sustainability, the idea that what we have to do is to improve people's quality of life and well-being, do that in a just and equitable manner, while living within the limits of ecosystems so that's my kind of platform it's a normative concept which i use to explore issues of food justice i use it to explore issues of urban design and you know where parks are where the where the trees are why certain neighborhoods are hotter than others in summer i use it to look at the concept of the sharing economy and the sharing city and most recently uh, to look at the idea of immigrants and food, because we've got a very active food justice movement in the United States. And it has to be said that, um, you know, immigrants haven't always been the center of attention. And so Sydney and I's book is an attempt to really take a critical look at that and at what is happening at both the policy level and at the personal and daily social
1: practices level. Thank you very much, Julian. Uh, Sydney?
2: yeah, so I um started in food justice uh, during my undergraduate at Tufts and was lucky to be in uh, Julian, one of Julian's um, grad classes towards the end of my time there and was really interested in food as a lens to talk about a much wider variety of topics from um, belonging to restaurants, to labor, to animal ethics, to, um, the environment. And I coming out of that, um, was given this incredible opportunity to work on this book with Julian. And that was really, um, we'll talk a bit about the timing of that, but that was especially, uh, an important moment politically for food and for immigration conversations in the US coming out of the 2016 election. Um, now I am, I spent a bit of time outside of academia in nonprofit and foundation funding, and then have found my way back to academics. I'm a second year doctoral student at Brown um, in the anthropology department. And my work is very directly coming out of this book in particular, looking at rural um, farmers and ranchers, especially multi-generational farmers that are engaged in political topics that you wouldn't um, expect them to in the kind of political polarized climate in the U.S., whether that be immigration, um, racial justice, climate justice, all sorts of topics that Rural farmers are actually um, quite engaged with in various ways.
1: Hey, thank you very much Sydney. Uh, I guess that brings me to my next question, which is still sort of a background question and you uh, somehow answered it already, Uh, but uh, I'm I'm interested to know a bit more about what made you write a book about immigrants at food I, I was just talking to Julian. Uh, before this and he mentioned that uh, there was a, a story behind the book. So what is that story or what are some of those stories behind uh, the writing of this book?
0: Well yeah thank you Amir. Um, yeah so Sydney um, was, was in my food justice class uh, in Fall uh, twenty sixteen, and there was a very significant event in Fall twenty sixteen, and that was the election of uh, President Trump. Um, and you know, Sydney and I got to talking, and we uh, we thought let's write an op ed, an opinion piece, which eventually was published by the Boston Globe. And the um, the theme was that um, you know that. The, the, in a sense, um, what a lot of people don't seem to understand is that this policy of the Trump administration to you know, to get rid of basically undocumented um, immigrants would have profound effects on our food system. Um, uh, and the, you know, because most of the workers in the food system are uh, people of colour, immigrants, most of whom are undocumented, and they are maintained in a precarious state. So we wrote this op-ed, not saying that hey, your food prices are going to go through the roof if uh, if Trump does what he says he's going to do. But really saying this is a this is a window to take a more nuanced look at the relationship between uh, immigration policy and food policy. And uh, as I say, it got published in, I think, February 2017. And I then thought, you know, there's, there's a lot more to this. You know, we had 900 words for a, an op-ed. Um, We can do more than this and so you know i talked to my publishers at mit and they said hey we really like that idea and you know said do you want to you know talk a little bit about the rest
2: absolutely yeah so that i like to think that that was a moment that was one of the reasons why i think this book got a pretty wide range and successful range of of research that was being done um leading up to the 2016 election and uh, just after, it was able to get at a lot of the different topics that many different types of academics and activists were working at the time. So coming out of that op-ed, we um, sent out a call for papers and um, got a range of, of voices coming out of kind of the more um, policy level work with food policy councils, with um, labor policy, with food and restaurant um, conversations happening in different major cities in North America, and then also some chapters that were really focusing on on immigrant food, food ways in the in the local context, on local media happening around the time, both um, that was. Uh, Demonstrating how crucial immigrants are within the North American food system, the restaurant scene, the labor scene, um, as well as kind of the the way that the anti-immigrant sentiment was disseminating into local media and local conversations and policy. Um, so, from there, was kind of kind of just started a um, uh, the process of writing the book, which was very collaborative with the authors. I really loved. Um, the way that Julian and I were able to work with the wide variety of people that that are authors on the book, some of which were um, uh, published published academics already, some of which were quite new into um, into their research, as well as on the activist scene, um, working working on uh, more nonprofit or um, collaborative academic activist projects.
1: Hey. Thank you very much. Um, so, and this is sort of a you know follow up question to uh, some of the things that you just talked about. Uh, you have a focus on uh, the North America in you know Canada and the U.S. So, was it? Um, I mean, I guess another way of asking this is as, how would you say the North American context? is uh, different from other contexts because if i understand it correctly this um you know immigrant food nexus that you talk about in the book exists in uh, other migratory contexts as well especially in the south to north uh, kind of migration but what is special about the north american geographies what is special about north north american politics when it comes to the intersection of food and migration and uh, do you have any views on how that is different from, you know, other contexts, for example, in Europe, uh, because we've been seeing, we've been, um, you know, seeing similar politics to, you know, the Trump administration in Europe as well.
0: Yeah, I I mean, great question, Amir. Um, I mean, you know, obviously we focused on North America because that's where we are based and that's the... Uh, most familiar context for us we we probably and I don't I can't even remember whether we did in the introduction you know say that we think that this is a more durable concept that could be used in different um, local and regional contexts around the world I mean that that's you know the very concept of the immigrant food nexus I think is a very uh, very solid one I mean let me take a step back I mean you know one of the one of the realizations I've had is that um food is the umbilical link between where you're from and where you are now and that that food memory, if you like, travels with you, whether it's on scribbled pieces of paper from your grandparents saying, cook this when you get to America, don't forget your culture. I mean, food is a conduit for hopes, dreams, aspirations. And, you know, we were really interested in that from a North American perspective. You know, we have two very interesting borders. We have the biggest uh, unmilitarized border with Canada, and then we have, you know, a, a very militarized border with Mexico. Um, and those contrasts, I think, are, are very interesting. Um, but but yeah, I mean, we we really wanted the concept to be a, a durable one. Um, and and again, this book was of that moment when. You know, it really did look like um, Trump was going to try and do what he said he was going to do in his campaigning. And that was to basically kick out undocumented workers. And, you know, so so we felt that that these this context, this political and physical and border context was pretty unique to the United States. But we by no means think that the, the concept is Exclusive. I mean, we, you know, Amir, I want to see some papers from you using the immigrant food nexus. I mean, you yeah, know, I as, yeah, exactly. And look, as, as, as an academic in the, uh, you know, the, the mature part of his career, I mean, I'm looking to legacy now and, you know, the concept of just sustainability is the, the, the jointly developed concept with the uh, Sydney of the immigrant food nexus. I want people to use it, refine it, um, change it if necessary. But it would be really interesting to see how it plays out uh, in different regional and local contexts.
1: Thank you very much. Sydney, anything you want to add?
2: Yeah, I I think, I mean, why we chose the specific North American context was because that is that is the one that June and I are able to speak the most to um, from our own research um, backgrounds, though I do very much agree that I, I have already started seeing um, some, some papers that are using the concept, um, particularly in the, in the European context, and I think that is also one of the things that that I'm interested in. There's When I've talked to people, and especially farmers, about this, they're very um, interested in the ways that the immigrant food nexus connects both immigrant farmers and farm workers from the global north and the global south and so i've i've been learning a lot of the connections that that this concept is also um good at good at thinking about in terms of farmer and farm worker solidarity and alliances um outside of north america and and especially between um central america and North America uh, as, as farmers are um, allying with, with global south farmers and, and farm worker networks. So I think, I think it definitely has um, applications beyond the geography that we we focused on. And it's, it'll be really exciting to keep seeing um, how those how those pan out.
1: Thank you very much, Sydney. And I will sure be using it in my future research because uh, I have seen many of the things that you discuss in the book and other authors also discuss in the book uh, in New Zealand uh, with regard to the intersection of food uh, and migration. Uh, And I'm I'm myself really interested in both of the topics that your book is about, namely migration and food, especially food. And um, when you look at the literature within food studies, Uh, and and please feel free to disagree with me, but uh, you you see kind of a dichotomy in their focus. Um, They either have uh, a macro approach that is a top-down approach that deals mostly with the policy and uh, national narratives that is uh, set by the elites, or they have a micro approach that is a bottom-up approach that deals with the uh, so-called ordinary people and their views, their identities, their lived experiences, and uh, in doing so, sometimes they uh, treat the micro and macro categories as totally independent of one another, uh, as if they have you know nothing to do with each other. Uh, so, first of all, what would you say are some of the implications of uh, approaching the topic in such a dichotomous way? And secondly, would you say that your book falls into either of these categories? Well,
0: you know that's a fantastically prescient question. Um, we nearly did fall into that trap. Sydney and I, you know, in our book proposal, we 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 were almost going to split it into this kind of national policy and then you know local um, daily social practices kind of stuff. Um, but what 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 we found when we got the papers was that there can be no separation between these the you know, the the immigrant worker uh, with a food food cart in New York cannot be, you know, uh, dissociated from, um, you know, immigration policy because, you know, they were being hounded by um, immigration officers and public health officers and such. So the, you know, national and local policy are uh, embedded, enmeshed, and so, yeah, we we really we really didn't um, we didn't go down that path. We decided to to really look, and we actually explain in the introduction, you know, our own kind of watershed thinking on this. Uh, Sydney, have you got more on that one?
2: Yeah, I I distinctly remember the moment we we wrote the original structure for the book, and it it basically divided the more macro, the more micro chapters, and then this odd section of, of interrelated micro macro. And it, and it didn't make any sense. And that is kind of the moment that we said, you know what, this, this division is part of the problem that we're trying to talk about in this book, which is that often in both food and immigration, the micro and macro are treated as two distinct realms when in fact the the most rigorous analysis aren't seeing them as these two things. And so, I mean, immediately coming to mind is Fabiola's chapter on gender and food in um, New York dairy and just the ways that that chapter, as well as so many of the other chapters, so well knit together how ICE policies were daily affecting decisions on the farm and the farmer and um, just did it in a way that that shows how fictional that division is. And so I think the way that we ended up structuring the book with these three overall themes um, of borders, labor and identity allowed us to try to get out of that division between the micro and the macro and think in ways that kind of pushed, okay, what does getting rid of that division actually do to an analysis of what's happening here? And how does it open up our thinking about how people are agents within these policy conversations and policy is also Mm -hmm. impacting the daily lives and ways that discourses are are happening in, in local media, in the conversations you have in the grocery store, As well as the conversations that are happening in policy arenas, so I think getting rid or attempting to get rid of that division was really um, rich in in our thinking about how this book would do something that hopefully would push how we think about food and immigration a a bit further. And I think many of the of the authors in the chapter were already doing that, so we weren't really doing anything new. We were just um, describing how great food. In migration scholarship was already pushing past that that binary.
1: Hey, thank you very much. And uh, it is indeed a trap. Uh, Julian used the term trap, which I was uh, trying to avoid because uh, I was not sure if that's you know only me or you know it is it it is and, and Sydney mentioned that uh, it is a tra- uh, it is a division. Uh, that uh, you consciously need to try to get out of or you know, be careful not to fall into. And it, it's a trap that I myself have fallen into. So uh, thanks for reassuring me that it's not only me. Um, so um, this is an edited volume, right? And with an edited volume, you usually get all sorts of paper from all sorts of scholars who have um, you know, different folky are from different disciplines uh, and I guess it must be a nightmare to kind of, you know, thematize these works and put them under set themes. Uh, so I'd like to talk a little bit about how you went about doing this, uh, what are the main themes of the book, what disciplines uh, the authors are from, uh, and this is only for my curiosity, are uh, any of uh, the authors immigrants themselves? Well, you
0: know, great question, um, where to start with this because there's, there's lots of questions in there. Um, you know, I've edited, co-edited uh, a lot of books, um, and yes, it is very difficult to, um, you know, I mean, you read some edited collections, and there are some really choice chapters, and then there's some, you know, eh, not so good chapters. Um, one of the challenges of being an editor, and I actually think it's easier to write your own book than to be an editor. Um, it's very difficult, actually, editing a text. Um, one of the one of the challenges is that you know we were we put out quite a detailed call for papers, um, and you have to accept that you know when you've chosen the papers, your authors are going to come perhaps 80 to 90% of where you want them to be um you have to maintain their voice um you you know you can't sort of pummel each chapter such that it you know reads brilliantly but you've lost the voice of the person especially when a lot of our speak when a lot of our chapters were by non-native english speakers themselves um so so yeah the challenge is um how do you get people to come to where you need them to be but allowing them a little bit of wiggle room because they want to say things in chapters maybe that you don't think entirely necessary so these are all some of the challenges of, of, of editing and you know i got to say Sydney did a brilliant job as you know this was her first major project like this brilliant job of really working with the editors I was actually on sabbatical in Montreal at McGill University uh, during this time. And I managed to get a little bit of money to pay Sydney to, you know, in a sense, um, you know, keep the office. Uh, and, and so she did a lot of the administration, but yeah, it is, it is a challenge um, getting a book where there is, uh, you know, an equal uh, set of chapters. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a big challenge, Sydney.
2: Yeah, I think um, coming, one of the things that I actually say to people is that I, I had a background in peer writing tutoring, and it actually ended up being um, very, very useful. And that was one of my favorite things about this project was working with the variety of writers that were coming from several different disciplines. So this, doesn't, this is not a very discipline-specific book. I would say we've got people from sociology anthropology geography um, more community-based um, research methods we've got more on the on the science side of of um, food science we've got uh, people on the policy side really all across the board of Quite a few different voices and yes um several of the of the authors are immigrants themselves um and so that to me during the writing process was some of the most interesting editorial conversations between us and the authors was when those disciplinary questions came up that made us realize oh i'm asked i'm reading your chapter in this way and it's making me think of these questions and those are coming to mind because of the specific disciplines that we are or are not in. So that was, those are some of the most interesting things of more of the, I remember in the food science chapters really into like pesticide resistance, um, such interesting questions were coming up about the social dynamics of, of the, um, the, the policies that they were talking about and, Um, On the other side, like talking about media studies, there's a lot in this book about kind of the role of media. And so the the author's disciplines, I think, added a lot to the fact that new questions were coming up that perhaps hadn't come up when each of these chapters were treated individually. But when we were viewing them together, I think each of them made us think of new questions that we were asking the authors, and the authors were... um, getting back to us with more thoughts on those and those were informing questions we were then asking the other authors so it was it felt like a very collaborative process in how each of the disciplines were um were informing the others as we were going through and and changing it as you said from a series of individual chapters to something that reads as as a larger narrative
1: Hey, and while we are you know, uh, on the subject of uh, authors, uh, I noticed uh, that one of the chapters of your book, and this is something that I hadn't come across uh, before, uh, is written under uh, the name Situational Strangers. That's the chapter 14 of your book. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about that and why Situational Strangers, why you have chosen or the authors have chosen not to give their names?
2: Yeah, um, that chapter was written collaboratively by um, a couple authors that um, asked if if that would be a okay decision on their part. And of course we said absolutely um, to have their names removed in solidarity with um, the particularly undocumented immigrants that um, are are in this book in a variety of ways, whether or not they are the author themselves, whether or not they are um, participants in the research, and so that was that was a decision that was entirely on them, and and was uh, yeah a pretty incredible decision to see in academia when so much um, of people's people's status relies on having citations and such, which requires names, right? Um, but so yeah, that was a decision on their part to. Um, demonstrate uh, with with the participants of their research and the larger um, body of participants that are contributing to this volume that are not able to include their names for reasons of, of personal safety um, and such regarding their status.
1: Very much. And another thing, this is not a question, this is just a comment that I really liked about uh, the book was uh, when you, you know, recognize each of the countries of a region of the participants in the in the first page of the book and the researchers and authors who have contributed to these pages, and there are, uh, I think, 30 something countries. Uh, that have you know um, either you know people um, the there scholars or you know um, the participants that you recognize this this the, I don't know Julian is this a you know um, common practice in, in the books uh, written about migration. Well um.
0: I mean, yeah, at the moment I'm working on a book um, where we are um, looking at a lot of uh, indigenous ideas like, you know, the seventh generation principle, you know, you plan for the seventh generation. Now that's clearly, you know, been taken up by a lot of people in the sustainability world and it's never mentioned that it's, you know, it's, uh, I think it's from the uh, the Haudenosaunee uh, people, Um the confederacy, the Haudenosaunee confederacy, we have to, um, in addition to acknowledging land, uh, we have to acknowledge ideas. Um, and I'm becoming much more ethically inclined in the work that I do. And so we felt, and I've, I've just got the book open here, you know, this book is dedicated to all those who've traveled from the land of their ancestors, forced and or chosen following the worn immigration and trade routes carved out by global foodways. Um, the book is written for them. It's not for Sydney or I. This, this book is, is, you know, is an ethical project as well as a, an informational and a critical uh, analysis. So, so yes, um, I think more people, certainly who are involved in critical research, are really acknowledging um, the voices uh, of their, um, you know, of their contributors, whether they are indigenous, whether they're immigrants, uh, whoever they are. And I think, you know, I think that ethical code needs to be uh, more utilized by by academics, um, some of whom, you know, get blinded by the project rather than uh, who is involved in the project. Very much, Julian. Um,
1: okay, so um, moving on to, you know, um, kind of a different topic. Uh, we um, hear a lot about um, alternative food systems in food studies, and, and also outside academia. And uh, the bodies that are often associated with such discourses and practices, uh, they are often white, and they are often a middle and upper class. Um, I remember I was watching the other day this uh, documentary on Netflix called uh, "Kiss the Ground." which I absolutely do not recommend. Uh, And uh, there were a bunch of white experts and white farmers uh, and also lots of white celebrities for some reason, like um, Woody Harrelson was narrating the documentary, or uh, Tom Brady and his wife, or uh, Ian Somerhalder, the guy from the Vampire Diaries, or uh, Jason Raz, the the uh, the pop singer. Uh, And also Patricia Arquette, who very interestingly talked about how she went to Haiti to, quote, teach the locals how to use you know, composting toilets. So it was one of those documentaries. But uh, what um, haunted me throughout the documentary was uh, the, uh, a, a kind of very strong emphasis by um, what these you know, white people and white experts on how everything that they were talking about was uh, actually new, was novel, They were talking about this as a new breakthrough. And and they said a couple of times that nobody knew this before. And uh, this was just one documentary. But we can see this kind of discourse elsewhere, and we can see it a lot. So uh, my question is, are these uh, so-called alternative food systems uh, that we keep hearing about, are they really new? and, And I'm asking this question because several chapters of your book kind of countered this narrative.
0: Well, you, you know, look, I, I, I'm smiling as you as you say this. I mean, it's almost like you're, <laughs> you're you know, you're setting me up to to, to vent. Um, look, what you've just said is the rationale for my food justice class. It's called food justice: critical approaches in policy and planning, and um, it, it is a critique of the alternative food movement. Um, you know, I can understand their goals, um, I can understand what they're doing, and a lot of the people in that movement are good progressive liberals, but their privileged positionalities blind them to the ridiculous statements, like you just said, this is all new. No, it's not new. All of this has been, you know, corralled from, from different knowledges, multiple knowledges, and then it's repackaged and given a, a cool name like permaculture. Um, and then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the object that everybody wants to move towards. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a very solid critique in the food justice literature of um, the alternative food movement and some of its ideas, you know, its restrictive ideas about what local food is you know, omitting the fact that, you know, local food in Massachusetts was until colonization was Native American food. Um, and, you know, there's in other books of mine, there are many examples of challenges to this notion of local, you know, the, the farmers in Maryland, who grow uh, African food, because there's a market, the Africans in Maryland want to buy local food. And I ask the question, what is local food in an intercultural society? So I think there's a lot of unlearning to be done by the alternative food movement. A lot of listening, uh, a lot of parking the privilege and the the positionality, and really getting to understand um, how other people, who are most impacted and harmed by our sort of agribusiness-focused, uh, you know, food systems and food procurement strategies, you know, listening to how they feel. I think there's a there's a bigger movement um, for food justice, of which the alternative food movement can be part, but it has to um, be less didactic and much more of an ally or accomplice to those who are really hurt by, by food systems. I mean, a corollary would be climate justice. I mean... You know uh, we're going to have COP twenty six in Glasgow uh, soon, and you know the global North is going to be lecturing about what should be done. Well, how about we listen to those who were first and worst affected and who have least um, contribution to our current crisis? Um, you know, it's almost like you know this concept of the white saviour complex. This you know we can we can do this we. Uh, We have the knowledge. Well, yes, but well, you actually you have the finances, but you also have the moral obligation because you got us into this mess. So. So, yes, I think there's a very valid critique of the alternative uh, food movement and uh, it needs to take off its blinkers and, you know, look at what is going on in local food systems, uh, in small towns, in bigger towns. Uh, around the world, but, you know, in my case, here in America, because there's a lot of really exciting work going on by immigrant groups, uh, which is, of course, the, you know, the, the, the whole point of our book.
1: Thank you very much, Julian. That was very un- insightful. Uh, Sydney?
2: Yeah, to add to that, I think, exactly right. I mean, to answer your question, are our, our alternative food systems new? Uh, I think we can all be in agreement of, of course, <laughs> not. how dare you? Um, and it, I think to add to it, it's a pretty damning critique of a lot of the quote progressive approaches that we're seeing in justice conversations. That they're that they're deeming themselves as progressive, um, yet if if the progressive policy is is treating these things, if you call it organic, if you call it regenerative um all these different things as if they are new thoughts, new creations, news new ways of being in a harmed world um we're talking about a harmed world that is quite new in the realm of 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 white, middle and upper class people and and the world has been ending for centuries for for many people and new worlds have had to be created and and I think taking a very historical lens and a very critical lens to what we're calling alternative um, is crucial. And I'd also add that it it brings up components of gendered, um, who who we're listening to in terms of alternative food, as this book um, focuses a lot on on all of the women who are um, doing incredible things in food and are being not really thought of as the alternative food leaders in the U.S., but but really immigrant women are um, some of the the key leaders in a lot of these things happening in the U.S. in more truly justice-oriented and and critical ways. It also, I think, brings up a lot that there's a lot of people that you wouldn't call progressive in rural communities um, that are Doing incredible things for for climate justice, for racial justice, for economic resilience that that really should be considered as a part of of the larger food change in the U.S. and that it doesn't even all have to do with food. So I think a lot of um, alternative quote food systems work is very blind to labor right now and is focusing um, on environment or on social um, topics that are kind of side, putting to the side labor as a topic that should be just as important in talking about, okay, how do we actually have farms that not only are allowing more equitable access to healthy foods and are being good to the environment and resilient in that way, but that are um, getting outside capitalist hierarchies of labor management, That that is part of regenerating um, food systems as well. So I think there's the breaking down this idea that this isn't new um, and that there are many um, communities, particularly immigrant, particularly indigenous that that are already the experts in this and that are already leading um, change. It, it break, just brings open a lot of other things in terms of gender, in terms of rural, urban, in terms of who we consider the, the change makers in communities.
1: Thank you very much, Sydney. Um, so there are two more questions that I'd like to ask before we wrap up the interview. Uh, the first is regarding uh, quote, culturally appropriate food, which you talk about in the conclusion. And uh, it's a topic that several chapters of your book also tackled. So what is culturally appropriate food anyway? I mean, who defines it and where one can Uh, where can one find it?
0: Great question. Uh, You know, it's, yeah, Uh,
1: wording is really interesting. I mean,
0: earlier today, I was talking about cultural competency. And, you know, one of my students um, years ago said, I prefer the term cultural humility. You know, how can we be competent in another person's culture? How can we um, and, and you know, and, Julian, they said, cultural competency sounds sounds so managerial, you know. You know, cultural humility is, I think, the way to go. So the, the notion of culturally uh, appropriate, again, sounds very managerial, um, culturally resonant. I think you know what we mean, and we know what we mean by it. But, you know, on a given day, I can go different ways on this. what I think what we mean is... That there's been a domination in the nutrition and dietetics literature about, um, you know, sustainable nutrition, about, you know, appropriate diets, uh, etc. And these have been largely, um, you know, white-centered concepts. Um, and so I think the the, the move towards culturally appropriate uh, food was, you, you know, really to look at food um, that... Communities themselves defined as, you know, the foods that they they wanted to eat. So, um, I don't think we're there with the um, descriptor. I think culturally appropriate um, is is or is not the best. But I'm wondering, you know, when will we get to that point where we can come up with what, what exactly we mean here? I think we, we, you know, we're talking about choice here. We're talking about pushing back from. Um, you know, white normative notions of what an appropriate diet is. Um, because as you know, uh, many different communities have very different takes on on body shape, body morphology, um, you know and and foods are part of that equation,
1: I think. Thank you, Julian. Sydney?
2: Yeah, it and I love the the term cultural humi- humility, Julian, because it it also I think a lot to what this book's chapters point to is that there's this idea that um, early on in the in the sustainable food movement in the U.S. people were saying, oh, we need we need more culturally appropriate food available. It's not available. It's gone. People can't find culturally appropriate food and in some instances, that is correct. But in some instances, it's kind of a whitewashing of what food is in communities. And many of these chapters demonstrate, no, our, our um, Guatemalan food culture in Richmond, Virginia is is lively and abundant and, and what makes it home for me. And so to say it's not here is so reductive. And so I think it's uh, this pushed um, several of these, of these authors really push on that culturally appropriate food, what, uh, however you define it, is is what food makes a place home for someone. And that depends on how they define it. That depends on um, what they are considering. If it's the international food section at Walmart, then that counts for them. And that's where they're getting... Um, their sense of place and where they're able to pick up the foods that they bring home and make um, for their family. And so I think it just, it really expands that the culturally appropriate food is kind of like a a fearful reactionary term of people who are probably not the ones we're talking about um, compared to a much broader definition of what type of food makes people create a home, um, wherever they are and bring parts of various homes that they claim to where they are and where they're eating.
0: Can I just add to that? Cause it, it just reminds me of a conversation yeah. Sid, and I can't remember whether we had it in your year, but it came up in subsequent years. The difference between what we're talking about here is the difference between nutrition and nourishment. Culturally mm-hmm. appropriate food is nourishment Mm-hmm. It's it's good for the soul. It's something that makes us feel good about who we are, wherever we are in the world. Um, whereas nutrition, <laughs> you know, is about the molecules. It's about, you know, sustaining our physiology. Uh, nutrition can be, uh, you know, thrown into your body in forms of pills or shakes or juices or something like that. Uh, but nourishment is this broader context that Sydney's talking about, that, you know, that that food is love, it's celebration, it's performance, it's tradition, it's identity, including racialized identities. So, yeah, big difference, nutrition and nourishment.
1: Uh, Which um, is kind of... um... I mean, you talk about, you know, nourishment in terms of love and, you know, identity, uh, and, and that is kind of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but another running thread through your book is, is the relationship between food and emotion. Um, so, uh, and, and that is also discussed in, you know, s- several chapters of the book. So is that, you know, somehow linked to what you just talked about, Sydney or Julian?
0: Yeah, I I think it is. I mean, you know, nourishment um, is is about nourishing the emotions. Uh, You know, again, I think, I can't remember whether it was you, Amir, or uh, or Sydney, used the word reductionist. We are so reductionist in the global north, um, you know, the Western, so called advanced world. We're so reductionist that, you know, and here in North America, I couldn't believe it when I came from the UK. You know, you'd go out to dinner with people and it was over in 45 minutes to an hour. That that really food was, it was perfunctory in so many ways. Whereas even in the UK, which is not known as a great (laughs) sort of culinary nation, although it's it's got a lot better. But, you know, I remember sitting in France, in Greece, in Spain, in Italy with friends and food was the focus of a whole evening. That's nourishment, that's emotion, that's love. Um, solidarity partnership um, whereas again nutrition is this reductionist uh, sort of idea that we can put chemicals in our body and we will we will function nourishment is much deeper than that so so yes nourishment uh, you know a big part of that is is this notion of, of emotion and and you know again I just want to make the point I mean that one of the really big points we make in this book is is that um, you know in these days of increasing anti-immigrant xenophobia um, we sort of hypothesized although we didn't test but it came through in the in the author's writing we hypothesized that you know food is going to become more important the notion of nourishment is going to become more important um, as a way to escape the hardships in many ways of being in a society um, where um, you know, in those days of, of Trump, where, you know, immigrants were scapegoated for uh, anything and everything. Uh, yeah, Sydney? I think,
2: yeah, I think that is is bringing to mind two things in my mind. The first is just seeing where this might go in terms of COVID and, and thinking about the, the, the experience of isolation um, obviously has been just gotten to a whole nother level since this this book came out and the book came out right right when covid was starting in the u.s um and i think the role of food as yeah as a as an intimate space of of safety or of belonging even in contexts where where belonging and safety are in question and there's a a a greater context of precarity in daily life is something that this this book brought to the forefront and I think the mental health as a part of food was something that was a key connection between a lot of the different chapters um and I think that again kind of goes back to our conversation about the micro and the macro of um Micro experiences of joy or prolonged joy and experiences of safety when when things are going better with with kind of national sentiment around immigrant belonging are just as important as these larger conversations about more um, more nationalistic or or violent sentiments against people. So I think this was this was also a thread throughout several chapters that the joy matters and the the moments of belonging and of connection over food and, um, feeding others and being fed by, by, by your family or by your loved ones are just as important in the, the kind of own overabundance of literature talking about precarity and fear and, um, the, the emotions of, um, Lack of belonging are are crucial to recognize, but they also can't dominate over demonstrating that people have complex lives and there are moments of of joy and of sadness that are that are a part of these um, food food kind of experience more broadly.
1: Very much Sydney and I think with um, you know you mentioned COVID and I I think with COVID and everything that has come with it, um, you could write a sequel to your book. You know the immigrant yeah. food nexus too, which is nice.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, well, funnily enough,
0: actually, I I don't know whether you've seen, you know, my earlier book, my really my first journey into food justice. It's called Cultivating Food Justice: yes. Race, Class, and Sustainability. And yep,
1: I definitely that, that,
0: have. That was 2011. It's it's 10 years old, and uh, MIT Press are literally gagging for us to uh, come out with a cultivating 2.0 and I'm pleased to say that we're having a session at the AAG, the American Association of geographers that's coming up in uh, February um, late February early March in New York and um, we received 30 papers 30 abstracts uh, of which one is is Sydney's to um, you know to, to be part of these sessions and from these sessions we'll make decisions about what what chapters are going to be in the in the new book so so yes I do think that there is you know I mean this book project was you know was was a was a start we I would love to see more of these kind of books Um, you know and and one thing that uh, you know we haven't talked about really was that part of the, the idea of the book as well was to destabilize the this notion of farm worker as some sort of racially coded notion um of latinx poor you know there's a good example in this book a brilliant chapter looking at how women um, um the uh, you know partners of the some of the farm workers established cooperatives and their, their their brilliance and skills um with the sort of financial management um but you know a lot of um benefits to, to the cooperatives. And so, you know, the book, the book is full of stories, I think, which again try to destabilize this poor Latinx farm worker idea and show that there are enterprises being developed um, based on these, these very skillful women with, with with multiple knowledges and multiple identities as Mexican-American women.
2: Yeah, and, and that, that's a great one to bring up too, because that's also focused in Southern Appalachia. So, breaking, breaking down a really pervasive um, focus in food food systems literature, even very critical literature, of focusing on the coasts and up north and kind of writing off um, incredible immigrant and um, indigenous and folks of color's work in, in the US South and Midwest on these topics.
1: Thank you very much, Sydney um so before we wrap up the interview is there um any further comments is there anything you want to add sydney or julian
0: um uh. <laughs> sydney any other thoughts that you have um i think this i, I mean i really yeah, like I question, so. Amir. You, you, you know you've clearly um you know really done your homework on this book and um mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, it,
1: it's a pleasure to. Um, I kind of had to, Julian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you had to? <laughs> because this is,
1: I mean, as I said, you know, migration and food are my two, um, you know, topic of research and interest. So um, it would be insane not to have read, you know, such a book.
0: Totally. Well, look, let, let, you know, let's keep in touch, Amir. I mean, you know, Sydney's doing her PhD. You're. Uh, you know, you're just starting out as a lecturer in New Zealand. Uh, I'm an established academic in the US. Let's, let's think about possible uh, collaborations, because I, I would be very interested in um, finding out how you you theorize and use the immigrant food nexus. And let me just also say that, you know, a very similar situation happened to me nearly 15 years ago now, when, you know, a young researcher called Alison Alcon said, hey, Julian, you know, I used your just sustainability framework to look at two farmers markets, one largely black, West Oakland, and one largely white, North Berkeley. And, you know, here's what I came up with. And um, and I and I said, wow, Alison, um, show me the paper. And so she wrote a paper for my journal. And, and I published it. And then the next thing I said, Alison, we, we've got to get a book out on this. And, you know, um, one of the ways that I am really quite prolific at publication is I work with brilliant uh, young minds like Sydney's, like Alison's. And Alison is now, you know, I would say one of the leading uh, writers on issues of food justice. And in five, 10 years time, so will Sydney be. Um, So, you know, for me, um, it's you know, it's part of uh, mentoring the next generation and, uh, you know, leaving that kind of legacy is really important.
1: An honor to collaborate with you guys in the future. And um, speaking of collaboration, uh, um, Sydney, is is there something, I mean, apart from your um, uh, PhD that uh, you are working on, is there any other current project that you're working on?
2: Yeah, so right now I'm um, continuing my research that I'll be um, presenting in the the session that Julian was referring to uh, next uh, February on kind of a more critical approach to how we're using food desert mapping technologies in the U.S. and the um, perhaps a ap- a political. Um, effects that it's having on how we're talking about food policy and access in, in urban food spaces and then um, yeah in in year two of, of work with farmers um, across the US especially focusing in Iowa and Georgia um, that are that are taking very radical stances on um, particularly immigrant climate and racial justice um, conversations so, Continuing both of those those works, and that that second project with um, uh, multi generational rural farmers is uh, collaborative with many of those farmers, and hoping to see um, perhaps networks of uh, farmer activists coming coming out of that and being able to connect with each other and others in the farmer and farm worker um, advocacy spaces in the U.S.
1: Thank you very much. And Julian, apart from uh, what you already mentioned that you're working on, is there uh, any other project that you're you know, thinking of doing in the future, in the near future?
0: Well, um, yeah, I mean, I've got so many projects, I, I can <laughs> sometimes I even forget them. Um, but one that is pertinent to this that some of your readers might, uh, your listeners might want to look at is um, I've got a very good student at the moment working on my urbanfoodstories.com um, a website, which in many ways is 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 a precursor to the immigrant food nexus, and it's just stories from um, largely immigrants um, or BIPOC people in in the United States who are doing uh, interesting things with urban agriculture, and you know have interesting stories to tell, and so we're 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 really uh, getting a whole load of new. Uh, stories and Sydney, you'd be interested to know that now one of the options in uh, the food justice class for your final project is to is to develop uh, an urban food story um, with an immigrant group. So, um, oh, so we're friend. really start, yeah we're really starting to populate that uh, that website. So, so Amir, if you can uh, guide your uh, listeners to urbanfoodstories.com. Um, and if any of you out there have interesting food stories, um, especially related to migration, then, um, you know, please, please get in touch with me.
1: Thank you very much, Julian. That sounds amazing. And I'm looking forward to, you know, knowing more about that. Um, so thanks Julian, Sydney, thanks to both of you for being here and for talking to me about your amazing book. I, uh, enjoyed reading it very much and, uh, I enjoyed it even more to, uh, discuss it with you guys. So, uh, thank you again. Great. Thanks, thanks for having me. us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.